Dear Founder, as you know, there's no blueprint for entrepreneurship. You wear so many hats, you burn the midnight oil, you pour your heart and soul into everything that you do. But without a doubt, the journey is worth every single second that you put into it. I'm Lindsay Pinchuk, host of the Dear Founder podcast. I say this because I've lived it for over a decade. I started my first company with $500 in my pocket and a baby in my belly. I grew it and I sold it all. This podcast is my weekly letter to you. We'll talk all things starting, growing, nurturing, and in some cases, even selling a business. Together with some of my closest contacts, I'm here to help you find your own success, whatever that means to you. The ride as a founder is the ride of your life. So come on in and join me for another episode that will get you one step closer to reaching your own founder goals. Welcome back to another episode of Dear Founder. I met today's guest on Instagram after she had reached out to me to connect, but that was long after I had taken notice of her incredibly tasting product in specialty markets all over Chicago. Laura Schaeferman started Legally Addictive when she was laid off and held to a non-compete in an industry she had been in for over 10 years. Yes, you can be laid off and held to a non-compete. Realizing she was burnt out from the competitive and toxic environment of real estate development, she decided to take a widely made homemade cookie and turn it into a shelf-stable one. She started this in her home kitchen in New York in 2015, selling it at markets selling it at markets and on Etsy, and now she's in over 1,600 retail locations and moving to a 6,800-square-foot production space in Asheville, North Carolina this year. Please come on in and meet the incredible Laura Schaeferman, founder of Legally Addictive. All right. Today on Dear Founder, we have Laura Schaeferman, who is the founder of Legally Addictive. And I have to say that I saw Laura's product before I even knew who Laura was. And I was so honored that Laura reached out to me to be on the podcast because I have been fangirling her and her product since I saw it in the store. And I'm trying to remember, I saw it at foodstuffs here in Chicago the first time. And then I saw it at Foxtrot Market and I tried it and it is legally addictive. It is the best thing that you will put in your mouth. My kids will attest to it. Laura generously sent them a bundle of all the flavors. And I will tell you that after school, it was gone in a week and um, they have been begging me for more. So, um, Laura, welcome to Dear Founder. Your story is amazing. And I am so excited to share with our listeners how you got this incredible brand off the ground. Yeah, thank you so much, Lindsay. I appreciate it. Um, so the story actually is, it starts with me doing something, um, actually it starts probably when I was like a little kid and I was always like a creative type. I always wanted to make things. I always loved to make tangible items and so forth. Um, and I just somewhere, you know, I, I just always envisioned myself like doing something creative with my life as an adult when I was a little kid. But as sometimes it happens that does not necessarily pan out as an adult when you are, um, you know, after college or older, you're living and working in New York City. I had to, so I just like everybody else, I found like sort of a job and a career that was like totally okay. You know what I mean? It was fine. It was fine. Did I really love it? No, I didn't. But was I okay at it? Yeah, I was. Um, the environment was like really unhealthy. I would have to say I'd probably put it like in the toxic category in terms of competitiveness and just like general all around, like, like morale in the company and so forth. Um, and I was working in real estate 
development for quite a long time, probably about 10 years and in several different capacities. And in the last job that I was in, it was sort of like what I would describe as a we work of real estate. So you see where that's headed. So yes. um, it was you sort see of my the, face and the listeners can't see my face, but I made yeah. a, yeah. a that's panicked like, face. Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, yeah, the whole thing, this was like probably around the same time that like WeWork was coming up or just before that and so forth. But it was really a very, very similar vibe, a whole very like similar setup of the company, like, you know, mass expansion with like, you know, nothing to really like nothing to pay for it. Just like a lot of, a lot of branding, a lot of branding, um, a lot of just, as you say, like smoke and mirrors and stuff, not a lot of substance. And things sort of hit the fan at one point within the department I was working in. And um, I actually got laid off from my job because the department I was working in um, actually just kind of fell apart. And we lost a lot of customers or a lot of clients and so forth. So um, I was laid off from my job. Um, Okay, fair enough. Sometimes this happens. There were other companies that would hire me and so forth within New York. Um, and with my experience, and my contacts, I was able to get a job really quickly with another marketing company, real estate marketing. And um, however, it turned out that the I was being held to a non-compete of one year where I was just absolutely not allowed to do anything within the real estate business for one solid year. And I was unaware of this. And on top of it, like I, I just did not realize, I was like, this can't be right. Like I am being held to a non-compete and being laid off. I can understand if someone's taking trade secrets or something like that, or if someone is in a very high level at a, at a position or something like that. But, but I was not. Isn't it crazy how corporate America can be such huge assholes and bullies? I mean, really and truly like, I mean, they laid you off and they're holding you to a non-compete and they're, you cannot get another job in the sector where you are, where you are, a professional and you have been a professional for years, there's, there's nothing more. I mean, the best way to describe that is a bully. And it's insane when you, because it's not, this is not an isolated incident, which is why I point that out. This is true. I, but I, I think that this actually was, I had never heard of it before. I had talked to other, um, I considered like, you know, maybe doing something about it at the time. I was so, I was very distraught by this situation. You know, this also happened right before Christmas, which is lovely. Oh my God. Um, you know, um, but um, I, I, I honestly didn't know what I was going to do. The other company had to rescind the offer because it turned out they were already in a, another lawsuit with the same owner of the company I had worked for, for a similar reason. And they were not willing to take a chance on getting into another lawsuit with him. So you are out of work. You cannot get a job in the area of expertise where you've built your career. Right. What do you do? So I did not know what I was going to do. This is true. I did. Um, that is exactly the position I found myself in. My friend Carrie, who at the time was working at Etsy, was putting together this holiday market, which they had in Williamsburg at the time. And it was being held, I think, the second week of December. And she knew that I made these cookies from time to time. I made cookies and granola and I would like make them. I, I, 
honestly, I was never like a food person, like a kitchen person. I don't know why I made this stuff, but I used to make it and give it as, give it as gifts all the time. Right. <laughs> and so she's like, why don't you like make those cookies and that granola that you make and sell it at this Etsy event? I was like, Oh, okay. I was like, and maybe I could like turn this into like a real business. She said, yes, yes, you can. You can do that. And I was like, okay, well, what do I have to lose? I'm going to go for it. And I'm on top of it being like a super supportive person, Carrie's also a graphic designer. So she helped me come up with the packaging and just like a basic label and a logo, everything within like a three week period. And I just got this like really like random. Was the name what the name is now or no? Yes, it was. Okay. And that was the only name that I had ever thought of for it, by the way. Um, and um, so I, I made the cookies. I sold them at the market. And I'm telling you, like, I was not expecting this, but they sold out within hours. Um, the market Were you was, sampling too or no? Um, I was sampling, yes. Okay. I'm just curious because yeah. it, like, the name of your product describes the product perfectly to a T. But you know, I will tell you, like, I, I walked past it so many times before I actually bought it. You know what I mean? And when then when I tried it, it's like, that's a whole other ballgame, right? So if you're, if you're sampling at a market and no one's heard of you before, I mean, like, anyone would be a fool not to buy your product when once they try it really and truly. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. I would hope, yeah, sampling usually like seals the deal because maybe most people don't know what it is. And this happens a lot. Like that's why like so many like food makers do sampling. And when, you know, when you do do a demo at a store, you're going to sell quite a bit of product. Um, so that's so you sell out at the first market and then what happens? Then I go home that night and I spend maybe like seven more hours baking all night long because this is a two day market. Oh my God. Okay. So then I spent the entire night making everything and hauling it back to Williamsburg. I'm doing this all from my like little apartment in Battery Park City, which by the way, had a kitchen, which I mean, I'm not even kidding. Like it was like a galley kitchen in a high rise. I mean, it was so small. <laughs> it's like, a, I mean, this is a typical New York story. Exactly. Yes. And um, I mean, I, and I also, of course, now we make them at a very big scale. So right. this is, I was making these like the way that anyone would make these, because this is like, and I'll like, you know, explain more about this later. This is like a homemade, a widely made homemade product. And I didn't have any kitchen background experience, nothing in food. So I didn't know how to scale anything. So I was just making it the way that I normally made it, but I was just making it rapidly over and over and over again. You know, like the stove was like going all night long. I just want to take a minute to say thank you. In just a few short months, this podcast has reached some incredible milestones, namely helping so many of you. From founding, growing, and selling my first company and now helping others to do the same, so many of you trust me right here on the podcast, but also through my classes, my one-on-one programs, and my social media. Your belief in me is so appreciated, and now I can help you to grow your own personal brand or your company's community through content, social media, partnerships, email, collaborations, and more. Just click the link in the show notes and fill out the form. Grab 30 minutes with me. We can chat, connect. I'd love to get to know you and your business and perhaps even have the chance to work with you. Thanks so much for being here. And so after you complete this market and you see that mm-hmm. you absolutely have a viable product, which it, you know, it didn't take long for you to realize, okay, I'm on to something here. What do you, what do you do? What is the next step? 
so the next step was I was like, okay, I feel like I do have something here. Like maybe this was not exactly proof of concept, but it gave me the confidence I needed to move to the next step. The very next thing I did was I uh, filed a trademark for the name Legally Addictive. And then I started to look into how to, like, what do I need to do to get this business off the ground in New York City? I started looking at like local types of um, you know, whatever um, permits and um, certificates that one would need. You do need to have a food handler certificate if you're making product here. So I went about getting that done. I tried to find a space to work. Um, I mean, this took several months for me to do all of this. This did not take a week to do all of right. these things. Because at the time, I mean, there were not really any resources available, or you might have resources, but they were contradictory about how to get a food business off the ground. Um, and this was in 2015. So I feel like there's a lot more information available right now, but there wasn't at the time. So I had to figure everything out. And I spent a lot of time researching things. And um, I also um, just took like several, like kind of like, I wouldn't call them odd jobs, but I did take some jobs. Um, on the side to kind of help myself because, you know, you live in New York City and I certainly did not have like money, like enough money saved up to live in New York City for like 10 months or two years or, you know, even like six months without while working. you were getting this started while I was getting this off the ground. Right. And um, so, um, yeah, it, I went through all that time. Um, and then I would say probably by the summer um, I had cycle. I'd gone through like one commercial kitchen space because that was actually one of the most important things. Like if you're going to sell wholesale in New York City, you have to have a commercial kitchen space. So I did find one commercial kitchen space in Harlem. It was called Hot Bread Kitchen, which is an amazing facility. They actually um, they employ um, immigrant women and teach them how to do things like make bread and pastry making and that type of thing. Like, like basically like pastry making, bread making skills so they can have like, you know, careers in the food industry. And they also make their own products, which they would employ these people that they taught as well. So they had a, like a, um, I guess like a kitchen incubator. And so I signed up for this. This was really exciting. But I, when I got there, they were experiencing like um, a, uh, they didn't have an air conditioner in the area where I was working. And when you're working with chocolate, um, that can be problematic. Yeah. But on top of it, they had to temporarily move all of the of bread ovens into the same area where I was working. So it was clocking in around 90 degrees in that kitchen. Oh, my God. So I, I, I only they were lovely, but I only spent one shift there. And then I had to find something else. I was like, I'm just going to have to go back to my home kitchen before I can find something else. And then luckily um, I'm in a Facebook group for women that are in like the food industry. It's called women in hospitality. And I reached out and I was like, somebody help me out. I need a kitchen part-time help me out now. And someone reached out this woman who um, I'm still in touch with to this day. I was actually on her podcast a couple of months ago. Um, she owns a cake making business called sugar couture. And I rent, and it was in Williamsburg at the time on Graham Avenue. And I would rent it at night when she was done with her work for the day because she had her baking, like her cake making in like the a back of house. And in front of house, she had a cafe that she would serve like cafe items and coffee and so forth. So then I just took over her kitchen in the off hours. And I would work there until, you know, very, very, very late at night, sometimes like one, two o'clock in the morning, I had to pull like the grate down at night when I left. And then I would pack all of the product into the trunk of like an Uber or a Lyft and then haul it back to my apartment, where I would then put it in boxes, and then I would ship it out. So at this time, when you are cycling through these commercial kitchens, 
Are you right. selling online or are you selling also at markets? Where are you selling the product? Oh, okay. So I was selling it online. I was selling it on Etsy initially. Okay. Okay. Um, and then about, I'd say nine months into this, I started to sell at a couple cafes in the city. They had these like tiny little packages that just had four cookies in them. And I would drop them off. I would put them in bags. I would drop them off. Um, I would put them on a bike. I would take them on the subway. Um, I never did anything as luxurious as taking an Uber or a taxi to go to in any of these locations. I was like just hoofing it the whole time. And um, a one of them was in Midtown East. And um, about a month after selling at this cafe, I got an email from an intern at Dylan's Candy Bar. Are you familiar with Dylan's Candy yeah, Bar? Yeah, I am. And that it's funny. I'm glad you're like, my next question was going to be, okay, well, what was the break? Like, what was the breaking point that like got you to the next level? So this is obviously yeah, that, it. That was it. And this intern, she emailed and she was like, Hey, she's like, um, I'm from Dylan's candy bar and we were putting together a best of New York assortment. And I tried your product at, um, XYZ cafe and I really loved it. So I'd love if you could send us samples and tell us a little bit more about it. So I did not reply to her because I did not know how to handle, um, like a retailer reaching out to me and my trademark was not yet complete. Um, so I thought this is crazy, but I was like, Oh my God, are they trying to steal my product from me? <laughs> but that is, that is a concern that many business owners have. And the you're when you are a small business, your guard goes up first immediately. You're not thinking that someone's there to help you. You are thinking what you thought. And that is not uncommon. And, you know, there, I, I have more conversations with small businesses and small business clients about competition and theft of idea and people copying than anything else. And it's because you as a small business don't have the resources that Dylan, Dylan's candy bar has. And so, of course, you're going to think that. Of course you are. That's totally a normal response, in my opinion, as a small business owner. Okay. I'm glad you feel that way because I, I mean, I like looking back on it, I think like it, it, it seems like I do remember there was this like terror. I was like, oh my God, this is exactly what I want. But at the same time, what is going on here? Like what is really so, going so on? So what here? did you do? Did you just, you just really didn't respond? You ignored it? I really did not respond to them. And I uh, probably about another week went by and she emailed again. So um, I reached out to the attorney who was helping me with the trademark. And I told her about this and I said, what do you think I should do? And she goes, well, first of all, I think you need to respond there. She goes, this is Dylan's candy bar. This is all through email. This is a reputable company. It's totally fine. They're interested in your product. Like if you like, I mean, this is yes. about a best of New York assortment. I was like, okay. I was like, I'm going to respond. I wrote back um, right away and sent her samples. Um, she said, Dylan needed to try them personally. And then I think the day that, um, I was headed up to Hot Bread Kitchen for the first time. I was on the subway and I got the email notification that the products have been accepted. So I was very, very, very excited by this. And I was like, oh. I was like, wow. And I just did not know how this was going to change things for me. But here I am, like somebody like making cookies out of my apartment and then this like 
90 degree kitchen in New York City. And I was like in this big retailer and this person who was very well respected, like in the food world and like has like really done an incredible thing with her business, Dylan Lauren, um, wants my product. I was like, I couldn't even believe it. I, I honestly, I was like, I really did not believe it. So what did that look like when you say Dylan wanted your product? Did they want to carry it in the store? Did they want to carry it in us in certain stores in New York? Like how did that pan out? So that panned out where it became a part of the best of New York assortment. And they had this little sign and a picture up of me and this little like blurb. And it was only in the store in Midtown, which was at 63rd and yep. 3rd which unfortunately has been closed, um, closed during the pandemic. But I mean, there's a lot of other things happening for them. And then it moved into some of their other stores. There was a store in Union Square. There was a store at Turnstile. Uh, there was also a store in East Hampton. So it went out to these local places within New York. And it was a part, like selling like that for, I would say, probably about um, eight months. And when they emailed me again, and they said, we would really like to actually make this like a permanent part and sell this nationally in all of our stores. And not only do we want to do that, we want to make this like a collaborative product. So we want this label to say Dylan's candy bar and legally addictive foods. So that to me was like, I was like, wow, I I, I really could not believe it. I mean, I'm telling you, I'm I'm now working in like the, the kitchen that I'm renting like overnight and nighttime. I am still delivering things by foot. I am, I have a couple of other wholesale customers. We were in a subscription box and so forth. But I mean, I was really like maybe in like 10 stores. So then what happens at that point? Because obviously at that point, your production needs to shift things change when, when you're distributing to a big retailer like that. Oh yeah, they really do. Um, so I did actually have, I, that's when I hired someone for the very first time. And what did that person do that you hired? Oh, she um, helped me uh, just in the assistance, like making the cookies, packaging the cookies, setting up the kitchen and so forth. We were working together like all the time and we became very good friends. We are still actually extremely close friends. Um, and that's how the whole thing started. It actually ended up being an amazing friendship. Um, But um, yeah, so we ended up, um, I did not know anything about how to ship product to a retailer like Dylan's. Like there was always language that was in in the POs. Like this is, um, please confirm case pack size. I was like, what is a case pack? I didn't know what a case pack was. Um, Please confirm pricing. I was like, or, and I, um, I think I even took out a, um, what is it? An invoice from Google templates. And that's how I started sending um, invoices. And I would, this is what I would do to package this product. I would go to the recycling room in the apartment building where I lived, or I would go to Staples, which was a couple blocks from where I lived, and I would buy giant moving boxes. And I would also go to the recycling rooms and take newspaper and crush it all up and put it in the moving box. And I would pack the moving box with the product like that. There were no case packs. There was nothing in there. There was just newspaper padding it and bags and bags of cookies. And sometimes there were like 500 because of those, or, you know, there was like 300 and you had to like use multiple boxes and I would lose track of how many I had put in there. And I would have to start all over again. So where is your business now? I want people to understand where your business went from you packing things with one person in a commercial kitchen that you're renting to send to Dylan's candy and not understanding what a case pack is to where you are today. 
Oh, okay. So today we have um, seven full-time employees and we've been in our own commercial kitchen space in Brooklyn for the past four and a half years. It's our custom space that we built out. Um, and we're in over 1500 retailers across the United States. And we actually just last week signed a lease. Right now we are in a space that's about a thousand square feet. We just signed a lease on a 6,800 square foot production space in Asheville, North Carolina. Congratulations. Thank you. I mean, this is like, this is amazing. Um, Talk a little bit about your retail distribution. Where, where are you being sold and how that's working? Because, I mean, that's where I saw you for the first time. Was it retail? Yeah, Yeah, our retail distribution is really where I started instead of doing like D to C, like I didn't even know that like D to C was a thing. And, um, you know, I certainly didn't have the money for doing something like that or just getting the word out about the product. So I had a conversation with one person. This was a one-time conversation. And this person, this was a mentor through this program that I was briefly involved in. And this person said, you really need to just get into retail because it's going to be predictable for you. And you're going to be able to have a lot more control over it. You're going to be able to sell more product at the same time. It's going to be excellent marketing for you. That's going to drive back to direct sales for you. I just took that like one conversation and I was like, that's what I'm doing. So we started our retail. Our retail is comprised of a couple different things. It's two like places that you've seen it, like Foxtrot. Um, th- those are sold through distributors. There's a distributor in the um, mid uh, called Pod Foods which distributes our product to the Chicago area and soon to be in the um, Texas area. Um, So that is one way that we work with retailers through a distributor. Uh, We have other specialty uh, types of retailers um, that we work with across the country, like ones like Green Grape in Brooklyn, um, Epicurean Trader is a big one for us in San Francisco. Um, Those types of places, uh, beer shops, wine shops, lots of cheese shops, gift shops, those those types of places all over the country. We're in hotels. Um, We have have a mini size, so we do food service. How how has the product changed? Like, how has the product changed now that you are like a packaged good? I mean, because you need to have, I mean, it needs to stay on shelf now. There's a lot of things that are, that have to be considered that are different from when you are just packaging them up and dropping them off at coffee shops and the turnaround, you know, the sell through would be much quicker than it is now. So how has the product changed and has the formula changed? Absolutely. That is a great question. And um, I wanted to cover that because the product itself um, is a, if people don't know this, this is a cracker with salted toffee and topped with chocolate and sea salt. And this is widely made in parts of the Midwest, all over the South. There's variations of it. People use all different types of crackers and so forth. So I was doing the same thing. This was the exact same thing I used to make, but because it's homemade, it does not have any shelf stability. Um, So people would make it with the chocolate chips, the Nestle chocolate chips. When those are melted, those aren't real chocolate. So you don't, they'll basically melt or disintegrate pretty quickly. So I had to find a way to work with real chocolate to actually get them to harden. So, and so they would stay stable. I needed to create something shelf stable. So uh, we went through many different iterations of different types of ingredients, different types of chocolate. We worked briefly with confectionery glaze, which is also not real chocolate. It has chocolate in it, but it's not pure like confectioner chocolate. Um, It is so the process that we have now is a fully like shelf stable, like 
more, it's not automated. A lot of it is still done handmade, but you know, we change the ingredients. We make real toffee. It's not like a simple syrup. Like everything is, um, we use like, it's, it's very precise. You know, when you're working with candy, when you're working with chocolate, there's a lot of like uh, precise elements to how you're doing things. So it's changed a lot. And we also use a, um, sustainably sourced or as they say, like an ethically, or responsibly sourced cocoa actually on our chocolate um, as our chocolate, which was really important to us as well. So um, yeah, we've basically taken a homemade treat and turned it into a shelf stable one. We have uh, six months of shelf life versus like maybe like one week that you would have if like you made it and put it on your countertop. You know, we talked a little bit at the top of the conversation about how the name of your product is really, I mean, it's everything because it speaks to exactly what this product is and it is legally addictive. So, you know, I would love for you to kind of share a little bit of thought on that because you probably didn't realize when you picked it, how impactful it would be. I mean, for those of you who haven't seen the package, the packages are beautiful. They're colorful. They're fun. And the name is right there front and center. And if something is called legally addictive and looks that amazing, you want to know what it's all about and you're more apt to pick it up. How do you think that the name has played into your success? Because you probably didn't think you probably didn't think about that when you were like going to that first Etsy market. Right. No, I did not think about it. I was just, um, I, I, I just later, but then that was the thing that people reacted to actually. So that was the thing that actually made people go and pick the product up off the shelf was seeing that they were like, wait, what? Like, like this, just this name is like, it's funny or or it's just like striking or it just like jumps out at you. So I think it is apart from just the the packaging itself, the name just pulls people in because they just want to know what it is. And, you know, and that'll stand out from the shelf. And then you can just go in and then you can like, there's like smaller writing that's on the bag that explains what the product actually is first. Are you able to comment on top line revenue and where you are today? Um, I can. Yeah, I can. I can tell you that um, we are our revenue last year was 750,000 and we're on track for um, 1.1 this year. Um, So this is um, considering the fact that nobody else has made this product before. We did not have a blueprint for making this product. We've had to come up with we're like two people who do not have any background in and food engineering, food science, I'm talking like zero. Okay. Um, like we have come up with this process all on our own. And, um, that is like, I'm astounded that we were able to take it this far and actually make that revenue because the process of scaling it is absolutely impossible. I mean, this is why the product actually had not been scaled before. Because as you know, I, I mean, you live in the Midwest. I mean, had you had this product before at someone's house or when you were growing up? Today's episode is brought to you by Hivecast, an amazing agency providing high-quality podcast production made simple and affordable. I hit the jackpot when I came across Hivecast. As I pieced together services from contractors all over the web initially to help me with my podcast, Hivecast was everything that I needed all in one place. For just $500 per month, they not only produce and edit four episodes, but they also create the marketing assets. Emma, my account manager, is amazing, making sure that I'm on task and that we can schedule episodes regularly and by my deadlines. Honestly, the time saved working with Hivecast is worth at least triple what I'm paying. 
Their sister company, Fireside, offers other marketing services for small businesses, including social media management, Facebook and Instagram ads, search engine marketing, and so much more. Again, all at a rate palatable by a small business owner. The best part, there's no contract. You can purchase their services as needed on a monthly basis. Use the code FOUNDHER and save 50% off your first month of services. Give them a try. The decision to outsource this part of my business has surely saved me a ton in the long run, and it was the best decision I've made for my business. I don't know, to be honest. Like, yeah. I, like I, I, it was just delicious. I, I really don't know if I'd had this product. I grew up in Detroit. Um, I don't really think that I had, but I, but it's not that, not to say that I hadn't seen it. Do you know what I mean? Like, right. and that's the other thing too, is that like, when you see something packaged the way that your product is packaged, you are more apt to pick it up versus like me seeing like this cookie cracker on like a tray at a event. Do you know what I mean? Like, because I, because when it's sitting on a tray or, and it's not part of like the actual full package, it doesn't have the meaning that it does when you're picking it up from the legally addictive container. I, I mean, it just doesn't, you know, I mean, it's, it's a lot of amazing marketing. I mean, you guys are doing, and that, and that actually brings me to my next question is like, what are you doing to get the word out about the product? I mean, obviously social media is a big thing, but like, how are you getting people to try it? And especially during the last two years when there was no sampling. Um, I would say that this is probably um, our retail partners have been like the best part for us um, because they actually do a lot of marketing for us. Um, and then um, so customers like people will see it there, um, like other retailers will see it there. They'll see it on others websites. Well, we do some like trade, like buy sh buying shows sometimes. That's how we get the word out. Um, or people just sharing it or our retailers sharing it and so forth. I mean, we've done some digital marketing. It has not been successful for us um, for whatever reason. Um, we're like looking into that right now. I think a lot of people have had like that issue like over the past year for digital well, marketing. Yeah, there's been a lot of, <clears throat> yeah. there's been like algorithm changes and whatnot with that have affected ad buys and add impact on social media. But I mean, but still you do have a product that's very Instagrammable from an organic standpoint, you know, Thank which you. is, um, which is very different than like buying ads. So I think one thing that helped us a lot was getting into some really key retailers that have a lot of respect in the food world early on. And I don't know if you're familiar with the Epicurean Trader in San Francisco. Mm -mm. But um, yeah, it's an amazing store. And um, it's just, it's really like one of the like top specialty food stores in the country. And they sell not just like, oh, go ahead. Well, no, I was going to say, but like when you get into a retailer like that, yeah. it's, you can then turn to other retailers and say, well, the Epicurean Trader is taking us. So like, I mean, it, it helps to really solidify your place in, in the marketplace. Exactly. I think Dylan's did a, did that a lot for us. Like people that gave us a lot of credibility and nobody knew that it was just like me, like in this like tiny little kitchen selling to Dylan's candy bar. But isn't I mean, that the story cool. with so many entrepreneurs? Like no one really knows. And I, and I know you said this before we hopped on here, like that Chrissy Fitchell's story with Apotheke really resonated with you. And, and I can see why your story is very similar. And you have like, I want to introduce you really and truly. I want to introduce you like like your stories are so similar 
And it's the same thing. Like no one knew it was her making soap in her kitchen. No one knew it was you making cookies in yours. I, nobody knew. Um, you know, it, it, it was really, 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 really crazy when you think about it. And I was just, I am like super, I'm, I'm very grateful for Dylan's for like taking um, Legally Addictive on and actually like putting up with so much for me, including how I shipped the boxes in the early days, Dylan's, if you're listening to this, I'm sorry. Um, it was, oh, I also, I also used to do, I used this, um, there used to be this app called um, Ship. Do you remember that? Yep. S-Y-P. And yep. they would come and they would pick things up for you and then they would like ship them or they would deliver them for you. Um, so someone used to come to the kitchen. I, after I was in the kitchen on Graham Avenue, I worked out of a, like a, like a commercial, another commercial kitchen in Brooklyn that is since closed, but they would come and they would just have like, basically like a giant duffel bag and they would come and I would put the products in the duffel bag and then they would go to wherever their packing facility was and they would pack the products and then they would ship them for me. It's like bananas. Yeah. No, when you think about it. Yeah. So I would love for you to comment before I ask my final question, I would love for you to, to take a minute and comment and share your thoughts for someone who is looking to make a pivot or who had an unexpected pivot thrown at them the way that you did, because it's really scary, no matter how you look at it to make a change. And you did it and you did it very successfully. And you probably didn't realize it at the time, especially when you went to that first Etsy market, that this was going to be what it's become. Um, But I mean, you have made an incredible career and you have built an incredible brand on a pivot and on a change. So like, what would you tell someone who's in that situation or looking to make a change? So um, first of all, I can't speak to someone who just simply wants to make a pivot in their life necessarily, because I did not do that. Um, I did not like plan for years or have an idea and decide that I was going to one day quit my job or work like a full-time job and do something on the side. That's I was forced to do this. And I don't think that I would have done it if I had not been forced to actually turn my life around because I already had another job lined up after that, after I had gotten laid off. Um, So I think there's a certain amount of like, there was a point where I just said, okay, this is my life. And I have to do the thing, something with it that I really want to do. And this is my chance to do that. This is my chance to start over. And how am I going to make that happen? And it was a matter of actually recognizing that I had the idea and going with it. Um, That was really important. A lot of people like, you know, just the execution of it, just actually doing it, I would say is probably the most important thing is like, if there's that thing, then you just actually have to do it. You know, it's not, you know. Well, and I also think it's like, it's so easy to get down on yourself when something happens, like what happened to you. And, you know, I speak from my own experience, like I was hired out of college to work at a big ad agency and then the economy tanked and 9-11 happened and they took away all of our jobs before we even started. And I was forced to make a pivot. And, you know, I really am a big believer in everything happens for a reason, because had I started that job, I never would have gone into ad sales. I never would have probably gone to grad school. I never would have started my business. Who knows? Who knows? I think about it often. Like, who knows? And like, you were forced to do this. And and it was an, it was a less than ideal situation at the time. But you made, you know, you made lemonade out of lemons. 
Yeah, I, I did for sure. <laughs> um, it was just, that was, um, I'm very, 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 very glad that happened because I just know that also just like, you know, financially life in New York city. And even if you're like, it, it can be very precarious here. So the idea that like, and I also don't want to like sugarcoat it for people that I did not start earning a, li a living from this um, for probably about like two and three years in. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. Um, and it was very little. Um, and, um, and then I just like kind of learned, I did not have an expectation to try to live the way that I had when I had previously been in like a salaried employee. And this was certainly not something that happened overnight to me. And, um, this has just gone like a steady kind of organic growth of a business. We haven't taken any investments yet. Um, at all, this has all been basically bootstrapped, um, with a little bit of debt. We actually, uh, we're happy recipients of an SBA loan earlier this year, which has helped us a lot. Um, and, um, but yeah, I think that also people have that perception of, and I think that I used to have the same perception of like having your own business and that like, you know, everything like being, or like or people viewing having your own business as being like kind of like the American dream and so forth. It's amazing. And it's super much easier to start a business here than it is in a lot of other places for sure. Um, and New York city on top of it, if you want to get like micro about it, it's also great because like people are very supportive here. Right. Of, of entrepreneurs. Where do you hope this business goes? Like, what is your goal for this? What is your ultimate goal for this business? So the ultimate goal for this business is to continue growing what we have right now. And we want to continue to make other products and bring them to the market. And we also want to scale our production process until it is truly a unique process where it's fully automated and we actually have something that just cannot be easily replicated, um, which we actually already have right now. But I think once we get it to a bigger point, you know, we're moving into 6,800 square feet. We'd like to actually be able to move into like 16,000 square feet or 20,000 square feet after that, or even more where we have like fully automated lines and so forth. Um, and I mean, what I'm really happy about is I still feel like though we've scaled the product, I feel like it tastes even better than the homemade version that I used to make. So it's not like one of those where you start um, scaling a, a something and it's like missing out on that taste. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yep, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, so we'd like it to get to that point. Um, and then we actually would like to be able to have someone come in and take over and help us grow that business where it is a national brand, where you're like sort of seeing it the way like you might see Tate's cookies or Oreo, you know. You like will get there. Like the product yeah, is amazing. It speaks for itself. It. You. you will get there. You will. Thank you. Yeah. And we want to be there for that whole part. Like that, that part to me, that's like the interesting part, like getting there. Yep. So what are three tips you would give someone who's starting a business? Okay. So three tips I would give someone who is starting a business is one of them is do not buy into hustle culture. Absolutely never do it. Take care of yourself as much as you have to. There is no need for grinding or, um, or whatever this whole thing is, it's I absolutely hate it. I think it makes people feel really bad about themselves because why can't we just be like people who are like quiet introverts who are getting stuff done or we're not a quiet introvert or we're just a person who's just like getting stuff done and we're not hustling 24 seven. If you're hustling 24 seven, I bet only two hours of that 24 are good. The rest is like trash. Like you have to sleep, eat, you have to exercise, do all of those things that you probably like are letting slide. That is extremely important. Um, yeah, there'll be times when you have to like kind of really, really push it, but yeah. Um, but 
for the most part, ignore hustle culture. Um, another thing that I would say is try to get around like-minded people and people who are ahead of you in business and doing what you want to do. It, the energy that you have around you is super important. So if you have friends or family members and that type of thing happening, you have to really tell them that you, you ask them to be more supportive, but then you have to look with and widen your friend group to become friends with people who are doing something similar. This is so important. The energy of other people, super important. Third thing, um, I would say is, so if you are starting a business, I think you should need to be open to changing your idea and your plan. Um, it's extreme. It's a lot of business owners, myself included at the beginning, I was very adamant about what I wanted to do and how it wanted to be done and how I wanted this business to be perceived. And when I opened up to changing the process and changing aspects of the business and who our ideal customer was and so forth, or even what the customer wanted, um, that's when um, I was able, you, you modify the business for your customer. You know, you don't modify the business for yourself. This isn't about me. Like right now, our business supports so many retailers um, that like I have to think about what they want and what their end consumer wants. So I just like being open to changing your idea or your product and taking advice from other people. Um, and then just, I think that was very helpful to me. Laura Schaeferman, founder of Legally Addictive. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I can't wait to see where this goes because I know the sky's the limit. And for anyone who is out there who has not tasted her product, get on that because you will be addicted too. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Lindsay. This was so much fun. How amazing is Laura's story? You can not only buy her products in 1,600 locations nationwide, but you can also buy them at legallyaddictivefoods.com. Absolutely go check it out, and you can buy all of the flavors right there. Laura had some amazing takeaways and lessons from today's story. I'll be sending them out to my email list, so make sure that you subscribe through the link in the show notes. When you do, you'll also get a lesson every single week to help you grow your own business. Here are the top five takeaways from today's episode. Number one, when you have a food product, doing a demo or sampling can truly lead to more sales. Number two, as a small business owner, you tend to be more protective of your property and product and information. Make sure that you take the steps to protect your product patents and trademarks so that you don't find yourself in a sticky situation. Number three, start by trying to get into retail first versus direct to consumer. You really need to get into retail. It's more predictable and then you'll have more control and be able to sell more product. It also leads to better marketing and then more direct to consumer sales. Number four, do something that you really want to do. Take a chance on something, start over. Recognize an idea and go with it. If there is that one thing, you actually just have to do it. Number five, don't buy into the hustle culture. Take care of yourself. There's no need for grinding. It makes people feel really bad about themselves. If you like what you're hearing, please make sure that you take out that phone, scroll all the way down and click that five-star rating or leave a review so that others can find us. We have some incredible guests coming your way. You are not going to want to miss them. You can also subscribe anywhere that you listen to podcasts so that you don't miss a single episode. If you know someone who wants to start their own business or who has an idea, please make sure that you text them this episode. Post it on Instagram and tag me. I'll share some of those to say thank you. Stay tuned for another episode of Dear Founder coming your way every Tuesday and Thursday.